and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 224. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have a returning guest, Ron Levine. Hey Kip, thanks for having me back. Well, you know it's always a pleasure, and today marks another entry in the ongoing series Between These Eyes of Ink, which is meant to examine quotations and the wisdom behind them, be they famous or lesser known. And in a particular delight, you've brought a quotation, Ron, that I'm really eager to get into. So if you wouldn't mind reading it aloud for the audience. Sure, here it is. O house builder, you are seen. You will not build this house again, for your rafters are broken and your ridgepole shattered. My mind has reached the unconditioned. I have attained the destruction of craving. These were the first words that were uttered by the historical Buddha upon achieving enlightenment 2,500 years ago. I think I'll start with a story about why I picked this quote. This is one that's always stuck with me throughout years, decades now of studying the Buddha's teachings. It's my favorite quote from the Buddha. It's my teacher's favorite quote from the Buddha. What was really interesting about this is, Kip, you asked me a couple of weeks ago if today, that we're sitting here now, would be a good day to discuss this quote. I agreed to it, and I started to become very concerned about how I would present myself, whether I would be clear whether I would get across everything I wanted to, how others would hear my message and what they would think of me as a result of it, whether they thought I knew what I was talking about. This whole host of stressors came up as a result of something that should be and is an enjoyable experience. A very good friend asking for me to come and talk about one of my favorite quotes. And I was having all kinds of mental pictures and anxieties about it. I was building a house. What the Buddha is referring to in this quote is really about the ego. He saw himself as a house builder. And the house that he was building was being held up by a ridgepole, which is ignorance of how reality actually is, from which sprout rafters comprised of what are called the three kalesas, which is a way of saying defilements or causes of suffering. And those are greed, hatred, and delusion. We all do this. We all build these ego structures, as my teacher likes to say, these houses that come out of this ignorance and the greed, hatred, and delusion that come from that ignorance. And this is not ignorance in terms of stupidity. This is ignorance in terms of, again, not seeing reality as it actually is, which we as humans aren't really equipped to. It's not really our fault. We do the best we can, but we build these houses in our mind and we tend to think that we are trapped within them when in fact the houses are within us. This is what the Buddha saw. He saw that he was not trapped inside something that was holding him hostage. He was holding himself hostage by building this structure that he had to constantly maintain. There are a few other symbols or metaphors for this that I want to quickly share because they may resonate more with other people and I like all of them. My teacher refers to it as a tapestry where we are all trying to hang up this beautiful tapestry that we are constantly adding decoration to and trying to make as beautiful as possible and trying to keep it hung up, but it keeps falling down or pieces of it keep falling off. And we are constantly trying to keep this tapestry up and looking the way we want it to. 
one way that I mentioned it to my teacher a couple of years ago was that I envisioned it specifically referring to the ego as being this large mechanical sculpture onto which I kept building and bolting things on. And I constantly had to make sure that parts of it weren't rusting or getting old and needed to be replaced or I'm adding some new pieces. And what really struck me at one point was the more I built onto it and the more I bolted things onto it and the more I shined it up and the bigger it got, the further I was actually getting from my actual self, which was contained somewhere in the middle. I couldn't even get to it anymore. The last way that I've heard it referred to, which in some ways is my favorite, not so much because of the symbolism, but because of the really dark humor. One of my yoga teachers likes to say that every one of us is wearing a mask and asking everyone else if it's on straight. So what this quote really drives home is not just this architecture, not just this process that is happening, but the direction in which it's happening. It's not something that is happening to us. It is something we create. And the Buddha saw this clearly. And upon seeing that process and the needless suffering it was causing over and over again, realized, I don't have to do this. I have seen the architect. That architect is me. I have shattered this ridgepole for the last time. I will build no more houses. I am free of this suffering. First, I want to say that I'm sorry in preparation for this, you were experiencing stress. And I know you're not thrusting any of that on me, but I do wish you hadn't felt any anxiety, doubts, etc. And I am grateful that you're here now. And I really appreciate that trio of examples because they illuminate really interesting things about how people approach their egos or, perhaps more accurately, how people don't acknowledge their egos and their egos are allowed to run wild and do things to their lives and their psyches. And I'm using the passive voice there, but I agree, at least as I understand you, that there is a degree of control we have over our egos. Whether we surrender that or culturally are told that's not the case is up for debate, but there's an undertone of self-reliance in this quotation that really moves me. And I love the imagery of building and destroying because, as I love creativity and try to lean upon it thoroughly, I don't often think about its negative impacts. I feel it's very common in cultures around the world to see creativity as something beneficial. Even if someone is rabid with creative fervor and doesn't get enough sleep or loses track of other obligations, it's often the case that we admire, commend, or envy the creative lightning, if you will, behind some of these people. And yet, in the example of this quotation, when creative energy produces something— internal structures, rafters, and ridgepoles that control you, it's not creativity in quite the same sense, but something almost tangible is being produced, and it comes to take on the form of psychological structures. And so I'm really glad that you brought this quotation because for many of us, our self-talk or the way we approach emotions or psychological phenomena isn't quite this well-defined. I don't think we would picture houses or frameworks, blueprints, if you will, to how some of our internal mechanisms come to control us or siphon control away from us. And in all three of your really great examples, the tapestry, the mechanical sculpture, and the mask that we ask if others is on straight, there's this anxiety present, which I imagine comes right after a short-lived pride or sense of comfort. 
I'm sure a lot of people can relate, that when you accomplish one thing, it's not long before you start doubting your abilities or chasing the next thing. It is very human, I think, to be dissatisfied or not to rest in satisfaction and thoroughly enjoy something. I'll also acknowledge that being overly content can lead to stagnation, but especially with the tapestry example, there have been so many things I've created, be they visual or auditory, that I think are polished, and I return to and find new flaws and edit once again, and find more flaws and continue to edit. And so that imagery is really powerful to me because I think it's valuable to sit with things and to realize, not only in a materialistic sense, that the more things you own, the more things own you, but the more things you do, in a sense, it feels like the more things are done to you. The more you interact with the world, the world is doing the same thing back. It's almost like a psychological version of Newton's third law of motion, that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And so I really appreciate your sharing those examples. And lastly, I want to talk about the mask example, because to me it feels in many ways counterproductive that so many of us as people could simply be ourselves, and that's one of the most common pieces of advice, so common, I think it's overused to the point of having lost its meaning, but it's so fascinating to me, and certainly I'd be hypocritical if I didn't acknowledge that I'm often a part of this, that we ask for others to approve some of our feelings and our thoughts, the things that make us who we are, when ultimately, I think that's our job to sort through and to determine what is real, what isn't, what is illusory, what is dangerous. But for me, this mask example demonstrates the reality that so many of us don't always know who we are and ask other people who are by nature further from us than we are to ourselves to discover who we are for us or to help us in that discovery. And I don't think it's so black and white. I certainly think other people can help us uncover who we are. But I do think in our culture, we more often than not ask others to do far more of the legwork than we do. And perhaps that comes from misunderstanding or improper relationships with ourselves. I'm going to try and go somewhat in order. First off, as far as dealing with my own anxieties, that's what brought me to this practice in the first place 20 years ago. It's something that I work with all the time and, in fact, need to work with all the time. So, frankly, you're doing me a favor. <laughs> so thank you, for, <laughs> thank you for inviting me to this experience and allowing me to work with what I've gotten accustomed to working with and what I need to continue working with. One thing I do want to clarify, which isn't to say that you specifically misunderstood this, but just in case it was something that didn't come across, I tend to take this for granted when I talk about ego these days coming from my perspective and sometimes forget that this isn't necessarily what most people would think of as the ego. When I'm referring to the ego, it's not this sort of narcissistic feeling of this I'm so great feeling. It's this sense of self as an actual existing thing. What the Buddha had recognized was one of the chief parts of the ignorance that he's talking about is this belief that there is a permanent existing self. The self is really just this concept that we have, who we are and what we do and what kind of person we think we are and what our characteristics are. This is something that changes all the time. There's nothing permanent or static or even stable about this. Our entire self is really just a concept and a bunch of memories. Once you start really breaking down, well, what is this self? Is it this body? Is it my mind? Is it my thoughts? 
There's a classic question to ask folks when they say, oh, well, my thoughts are myself. And you say, okay, can you observe your thoughts for a minute? What are you thinking? And they'll do that. And you'll say, so if your thoughts are yourself, who was just observing those thoughts? It kind of goes along with that. Where I found this really fascinating and you really gave me pause was when you started talking about creativity. I've never heard that word used in this context before. A lot of what gets talked about in this area of ego and ego structures and how the mind works is how sneaky the mind is about this, about creating this concept, this context that we start to take as our reality. It's very difficult to see that process as it's happening because we think ourselves to be within it. And when you started talking about creativity, my first thought was, oh, Kip might be misunderstanding what I'm talking about with this house thing and maybe taking it too literally and thinking, oh, people are being creative and building things and art and houses and, and you know, these are good things. We usually think of these as being good things. And I never really thought of it in this negative sense. And I was about to jump in and say, no, I think you're misunderstanding me. And then I stopped and I really had to think for a minute. I was like, no, this is exactly what's going on. This is the mind's creativity. This is the mind creatively finding a way to get what it wants. And what it wants is this reason to be. There's a reason why we have trouble freeing ourselves even when we're confronted with the opportunity to free ourselves. We're scared. And that fear is coming from the mind, which has this ego structure the same way we want to continue to exist, it wants to continue to exist. And as soon as the opportunity comes up where that might cease to exist, it's going to fight as hard as we would when we become threatened. What was really fascinating was you went straight from that into desire and dissatisfaction, which is exactly what the Buddhist teachings are all about. I did a recorded guided meditation recently where I said dissatisfaction is our birthright. People are here because of dissatisfaction. I think we may have actually talked about this in one of our earlier podcasts. We survived because of dissatisfaction. Those of our ancestors who were not happy with their conditions, who were looking for threats all the time, working to solve problems, these are the folks who made it. And we're the ones who are here because of them. And those traits have gotten passed down and, if anything, amplified over millennia. It's that kind of drive, that kind of desire, as the Buddha says, the destruction of craving. That is what drives this ego. That is what drives building these ego structures of who am I, what can I get, how much of it can I get, how fast can I get it, how much does that person have, where do I, where do I compare, where do I rank. This is all the mental structure, and this brings me right back to where I started where I said, oh, I have this opportunity to come have a great discussion with a great friend on a great podcast about a quote that I love, and I'm freaking out. Why am I freaking out? Because I'm thinking about myself. This concept of, am I going to seem knowledgeable? Are people going to like me? Are people going to believe me? Am I going to communicate in a way that I will feel afterward was effective and appropriate? And I spent so much time worrying about that instead of simply thinking, oh, we're going to go have this great conversation about this quote that I've loved for years and know pretty intimately. 
with all that you've given me to examine and respond to, I'm actually going to go backwards and talk first about the destruction of craving, which is one of my favorite phrases in this quotation because to me, for as ominous as it might seem in a linguistic or literal sense, I think it's really healthy for all of us to address some of our driving impulses and cravings. On a gustatory or culinary level, a lot of us crave sugars and fats because of what our bodies need or think that they need. But if you're not careful, that craving can become unhealthy. You can overindulge in things that your body does not need in excess and which, in a very dark poetic sense, are abundantly available for many people in the modern world, of course dependent upon the country you live in. And so in my interpretation, the destruction of craving means confronting what drives you, forces like the ego that might actually be piloting the ship, and what you should do to respond to them, in some cases denying them outright and saying that you are sufficient in the current moment or circumstance that you occupy, which is really hard and not something any of us are particularly taught to do. And I do wonder if we are taught by people who have not destroyed their craving and so for them to teach us would be hypocritical, backwards, and also, as I think we can all relate to, how weird and uncomfortable does it feel when you see someone succeed at something that you've tried before, or that you know would be healthy or beneficial to you, but you haven't attempted it, or perhaps worse, you have and failed? So I can see why things like craving persist, and why many of us, excluding the Buddha and others like him, do not achieve destruction of craving. Relatedly, you brought up the mind and feeling scared, which is a really powerful feeling and one that drives a lot of us. And I would encourage listeners, looking at this image of the house or the home, to think about the experience of being home for too long. It becomes like a prison. You aren't exploring things, and although, again, in a modern world, many of us can have things delivered to us, you aren't actively engaging in the same way. And I do think extroverts, introverts, and other folks of other characteristics might define being at home differently, but in my outlook, being at home can often leave one disengaged. And so within this quotation, house builders and people who have homes not only have an ego telling them X, Y, or Z, but the home almost reinforces your fear. Now you have doors and locks and maybe possessions to follow the metaphor further. You have things to guard and maybe even reasons that you shouldn't leave the home because if you do, those things will be vulnerable. And I'm not saying everyone could necessarily do the following, but spend a great deal of time in your life traveling, recognizing that you may not need the possessions you think you do. And I suspect, though enlightenment may be a high bar, that you'll come away with wisdom I think people who travel light understand the principle of letting go of some things, and I don't think they are contained or imprisoned by their homes or houses in the ways that many of us are. I would point to rising statistics that Americans are increasingly lonely, and over the past several decades, average American house sizes have been expanding. Obviously, this quotation wasn't meant to be taken literally, but what about the Buddha's words apply to how we actually build homes? and how we try to own these spaces, and of course, ironically, how they may end up owning or at least largely controlling our behavior or senses of safety. And lastly, Ron, much to my delight, you used words like static and stable, and images immediately sprang to my mind of human settlements of any scope or size when you look from the air or from space 
what demonstrates humanity's influence or presence in the world more than the lights or the size and structures of the homes we have built, however large, towering, or expansive, you can often see them at great distances. And I think homes in that sense illustrate some of our impulsive preferences for stability and certainty. But we have an evolutionary heritage in wandering. The reason human beings have come to occupy every continent on the globe, and at some point in perhaps the not-too-distant future, other areas of our solar system, is that we have a predilection for wandering that I think many of us deny. We settle down and I think become too cooped up. We stop exploring. And I would point to Carl Sagan's wonderful words that human beings were wanderers from the beginning, that we often knew our natural landscapes not because we lived in closed quarters, but because we continued to explore. We were hunters and gatherers, not sitters and standers, so to speak. I'm glad you brought up craving and abundance. That's one of the things that I talk about quite a bit when I'm discussing these areas is we're, we're in this. And again, this, this might start getting into some of the stuff that we talked about on an earlier podcast. But one of the sort of ironic situations that we find ourselves in these days is that we do have so much available to us. To use your example, no shortage of sugary or fatty foods, for example. And there was a time when our craving for those things were very appropriate because they weren't available in such numbers. And we could extend that to any number of things that are available in great amounts today that weren't when our ancestors were on the planet. So we're in this very odd situation where we have abundance of all the things that we are hardwired to crave, and yet our craving doesn't have an off switch. So I've seen this referenced in some places as we are boiling over with impulses that we're discovering can't be satisfied, regardless of how many things are available to us that we think can give that satisfaction. And as a result, we just try harder. I like that you made reference to the downside of being home for too long. That can be taken both figuratively and for me, literally. In a figurative sense, it's very common to hear the phrase, nothing grows in the comfort zone. To me, it has a very literal meaning. And again, it comes back to the first thing I said about being anxious about this and also about how it's good for me to do this and be anxious about it and work through that. When I started getting into this practice 20 years ago, it came out of clinical anxiety that included agoraphobia. I was literally housebound for six months. I was unable to work. I was on short-term disability, the whole bit. I was literally trapped at home. I forget the exact terms that you used to describe what that would be like, but the terms that you used were accurate. Very limiting. It's like you're a prisoner and you don't have interaction with the outside world. And what had brought me to that point was a spiral of trying to satisfy this craving I had for complete and total comfort. I was trying to make every part of my life completely stable and predictable, trying to remove any kind of perceived threat, any kind of surprise, anything that could disrupt what I had. And what I found, like what I was saying earlier, is that no matter how much comfort I was on paper able to achieve for myself, that craving never stopped. And I had gotten to the point where I technically did have quite a bit of comfort, and yet I was just getting worse and worse. I was falling into this exact house builder trap. 
building this house that was getting smaller and smaller, and I was within it, but I was also its architect. That's why it's very important for me to do the things that I do today. I learned that as counterintuitive as it was at the time, that the way out of that wasn't to achieve this ultimate comfort, which of course was impossible anyway, but to experience, truly experience discomfort. There is no comfort without discomfort. I have come to learn that comfort isn't really so much a thing as just a lack of discomfort. And I will notice that lack of discomfort after I have experienced something uncomfortable. So I habitually put myself in situations where I will feel uncomfortable because I know what happens if I don't. I also really liked the analogy that you drew in terms of having actual physical houses with lots of things in them that you feel like you can't leave because then they'll be vulnerable. That really resonates with me as someone who has only moved a couple of times in his life and probably has too much stuff and does know what it's like to want to try to achieve lots and lots of comfort to feel very safe. And when I had my morning meditation today, I had this insight that I was so struck by. I actually went and posted it on Facebook. I said that the same softening that lets things in also lets things go. And that's something that I've been working on a lot lately myself is how do we let go, which is a whole other topic in itself, but ties into what the Buddha was talking about with this quote, which is letting go of this house and this need to build these houses. And one of the things that I've noticed as I've been working on this is how much fear that there is in letting go. And I think you really shed some light on that for me personally by saying, hey, if you've got these things, you might be afraid of leaving the house because they'll be vulnerable. That really speaks to what I'm feeling is, hey, if I let this stuff go, what if I need it again? And one of the things that I actually realized this morning and wrote down was, hey, just because you let something go, that doesn't mean it's not going to be where you left it. So it was really timely that the way that you said that, that really resonated for me. So thank you for saying that. The one other thing that I mentioned very briefly is you talked about the actual physical structure of houses and how that relates. And I do want to say we don't have the time to talk about it now. And I also don't know that I personally could do it justice anyway. But for any listeners who are interested in looking up this kind of thing, the Buddha chose his words extremely carefully. And there is literature out there that describes why he chose the wording that he did as best we understand it. And it really does tie in very, very literally to the way that people built houses in his time and culture. This isn't a purely metaphorical quote. It really does have roots in very literal house building, which if folks want to go look that up, there's a lot of interesting reading out there. I love that you say that you put yourself in situations where you anticipate or know you will feel uncomfortable as a means to grow and push yourself outside of previous areas of comfort. I'm sure I've said very similar things countless times on this show, but I find that behavior and philosophy invaluable, and I really admire it. And along with that, I love your belief in the pairing of comfort and discomfort. 
that one doesn't exist without the other, that we often pursue comfort perhaps because we fear being uncomfortable, and often we sit and linger in areas of comfort because of what our minds or our previous experiences tell us about how painful or cumbersome or heavy discomfort is going to be for us. And one last time before we close this episode, I'd like to read the quotation again for listeners primarily. O house builder, you are seen. You will not build this house again. For your rafters are broken and your ridgepole shattered. My mind has reached the unconditioned. I have attained the destruction of craving. And Ron, before we say goodbye, what would you like the audience to think about after listening to our discussion? I would invite listeners to think about where this might apply in their lives as they're going about their day. I've been practicing meditation for a long time, but it's not about the time spent sitting on the cushion. It's about taking it out into active living. Maybe in the next couple of days, take notice once or twice about how you're thinking about something, an event, a project, a relationship, and how you might be building your own ego structure in relation to it. Maybe something similar to the same way I initially felt anxiety about this podcast. It could be something huge. It could be something as little as being out driving and getting cut off. It's something that as you watch for it, you'll notice it comes up again and again and again. The hard part really is catching it because it happens so quickly and so automatically. And you don't even necessarily have to do anything about it. Trying to interfere with the process in itself can become another ego trap. So I'd invite listeners to very simply just try to notice if and when it's happening. And I don't actually have much to add in this case. When you first shared this quotation with me, it flew straight over my head. And even now, I still don't know how thoroughly I comprehend it. So one question I would have to listeners is simply, what do you make of it? Had you heard it before? Do you think it's applicable? Perhaps a bit abstract for you? Any of your thoughts, as always, would be welcome. And lastly, I would point listeners to the very specific wording of the penultimate line. The Buddha does not say, I have reached the unconditioned, but my mind has reached the unconditioned. And I'd be curious to know what you make of that distinction, if anything at all. And now, Ron, I want to take a moment to thank you for coming on and speaking today. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Kip. It was great to be here again, and I'm looking forward to the next one. As am I, but as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and there are many of us who are building houses out there, so we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show, as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like bonus episodes. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.